Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is children's book author Raquel Ortiz. La doctora Raquel Ortiz was born and raised in Lorraine, Ohio. She holds a Ph.D. in social anthropology from the University of Salamanca and has worked at the Brooklyn Museum, the Allen Memorial Art Museum, and El Museo del Barrio. She's the author of, and these are all bilingual books, so I'm going to read only the Spanish title, um, Sophie y el Mágico Mural Musical, Sembrando Banderas en la Calle División, Sophie Pinta Sus Sueños, Cuando Julia Bailaba Bomba, Alma y un Verano de Cambio, and the soon-to-be-published Alitas Rotas. Bienvenida a este episodio, Raquel. Gracias, Elena. Thank you. Raquel, tell me about growing up in Lorraine, Ohio. Sure. So um, I was lucky enough to grow up surrounded by family. So mm -hmm. there's many Puerto Rican families here because of Operation Bootstrap and people actually going to the island of Puerto Rico to recruit, recruit workers for the steel mill. Mm -hmm. So it's a very Puerto Rican community. And I had all my aunts and tios and my parents. And it was easy to everyone knew you were Puerto Rican. So mm -hmm. it was um Quiet, nice, um, a house in the backyard, and nothing. We had a it was a it was a, a beautiful childhood. <laughs> Since then, you have lived in places like New York. What did growing up in Lorraine teach you about being Puerto Ricana? Right. So then I got to find out about other diasporic communities when I got older, and I was able to see the differences. So, mm -hmm. like I mentioned, a lot of people came here for the steel mill. And we had, we, we owned our house, you know, and a lot of Puerto Ricans in my community were very financially stable because they worked real hard. They worked really, really hard at the steel mill. But, or, and the, the wages were fair. The wages were good. And these guys did a lot of overtime. So we had this economic stability that I know other communities did not have because mm -hmm. they had to go into service industry jobs that did not pay as well or there wasn't the security that a lot of our people had. Um, the other thing that I learned about were a lot of the different movements that maybe our community didn't participate in as much as could have or mm. just weren't being, you know, tapped into. So, for example, the push for bilingual education that you saw a lot of it happening in New York and in Chicago, there was a lot less of that here. Um, so I forgot to mention my mom, she worked for the National, the National Association of College Bookstores, and she was able to bring books home all the time. And the only thing was she had to, they had to rip off the covers so that we wouldn't resell them. <laughs> but we had tons of books and towers of books and all kinds of different books and maybe like not even age appropriate books, just to just bring books. And we never knew you couldn't read a book because of you being a certain age. So then afterwards I found out, you know, other people didn't have that. It was, It's essentially a luxury, you know, mm. between the public library that I could walk to that had lots of books and then my own house being full of books. So that was something that later when I started 
learning more about education and our people's education and literacy, I found out how lucky I had been and how unlucky some of our other communities are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have a wide range of experiences from your background in anthropology to being a professor and in the last few years, a children's book author. Tell me about this professional journey. Sure. So I think it started off with my master's. So I did a master's in Puerto Rican studies at El Centro de Estudios Avanzado de Puerto Rico y el Caribe. Mm-hmm. And I ended up studying the artist Jose R. Alicea. And I was looking at his collection of work that's um, portfolios that had, they had um, print art with words, with poetry or with mm-hmm. lyrics to songs. Mm-hmm. So that really called out to me, and I studied that, and then I went on to do a PhD. And with a PhD in um, cultural anthropology, I looked at murals, public murals, that were once again telling stories. Mm. So then when I was working on um, the analysis of one of the murals, the Pope Cantor, I started imagining what would happen if, like, someone fell into that mural, and then, like, what would the story be if this she, this little girl, maybe, <laughs> Sophia, um, named after my daughter, Sophia, mm. um, what would happen with her going to different parts of Puerto Rico and, and how that would be? And then when this was all happening, the big piece of El Pueblo Cantor is a, a vejigante, a carnival figure. So... I knew I had to study to find out what the Bejigante was because there's some things that we have here in the diaspora and then there's other things that we don't have. So I was also kind of, you know, as I was learning about my own identity, I was also writing about the process of other people writing, you know, learning, understanding their identity. And that's kind of like, you know, the big pieces of how things started for me from researching and reading and studying a lot of work and then thinking about it and then luckily being able to to take it and turn it into this story that is pretty accessible because you know picture books are for four to eight year olds Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. so it's a story that little people can understand but then also their parents or their their guardians or their teachers can also read it and uh, learn about our culture as well I like how you're connecting the like murals, right? The tradition of murals, which is um, mm-hmm. also very common in um, in Latin America as a whole, um, and and storytelling, right? Uh, how right. murals tell a story, but then you put it into a children's book, um, and it's it, there's a clear connection there. Um, and it's obvious that um, you know your interest in in education and and and, and books or writing comes. from from your own family. Uh, so you, I know right. you've done a lot of work in developing educational materials that center on the voices of the Puerto Rican community. Uh, tell me about mm-hmm. this work, and you're doing this also through your books, um, which we don't, you know, as we... Um, in the last, I don't know, a few years, maybe um, five, ten years, we are slowly seeing more uh, children's literature in, in English and Spanish or bilingual books, uh, for different age groups, but a cer- we're, we're certainly behind. There, we need more. Oh. <laughs> we need more of this. Right. Um, so, tell me about the work you've done um, uh, creating this educational uh, materials. Sure. Well, I think the the first thing that I did was that was my own project was a documentary that was funded through the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, and it's called Memories on the Wall. 
And that was all about middle school kids that were articulating, talking about their identity and who they were. And then they were working with Maria Dominguez, who's the artist of the mural that, that I studied for my dissertation, and how they understood identity and how they they wanted to show their own identity. This is the symbols that they would use. Mm. And then um, I continued on, and at the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, they were developing a program, the Puerto Rican Heritage Culture Ambassador Program. So they invited me to, to come on board to create curriculum and educational material. By that time, I had already been working with Literacy Inc. and Behind the Book and the Brooklyn Public Library, and I had some experience in family literacy. And I was beginning to understand how powerful family literacy is mm. and, and how exciting it is to be able to talk to two groups of people because you have the children and then you have whoever's accompanying the child. So it could be the educator, it could be a librarian, it could be a mom, it could be a grandma, it could be mm-hmm. an older sister, or, you know, in Latino families, it could be all of them. Right. <laughs> they might all come. <laughs> yes. And that's great. And that was great because then we had all of these people that we could talk to and share. And sometimes they were giving us knowledge because they knew more about the Vejigans or Carnaval or Burma right, than we did. Right. And then sometimes, you know, they had no idea whatsoever because they were like me, you know, mm. born and raised here and figuring things out or, or learning about their mm. culture. Mm. That's interesting. That's uh, Thank you for that example. Yes, you're right. I mean, it would be um, sort of like... Um, a time for community learning, right? Both uh, you as uh, maybe the scholar or the person that's putting the event together, uh, but from uh, maybe a limited or, um, yeah, limited lived experience of uh, uh, growing up in the States or in the mainland versus the island, right? Mm-hmm. And, and sort of those stories mm-hmm. or those those details that, um, that might um, escape you. <laughs> the community right. gets to come and fill, fill in those gaps and, and learn together. Mm-hmm. Right. And then some of the stuff is regional, you know. I mean, right. not all of the island is the same thing. So mm-hmm. some people knew they didn't know because it just wasn't from their part of the island. They would say, oh, that's from Luis Aldea or oh, that's from Ponce. So they would help us understand that not the whole island is celebrating Carnaval, not the whole island is dressing up like a bejigante. Right, you know? right, so right. It's not that simple. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. Um, so Raquel, I know that, um, so tell me about this, you know, creating this type of educational materials and, and, and seeking, looking specifically maybe for bilingual books, uh, bilingual books about um, the Puerto Rican experience or with, you know, uh, the Puerto Rican culture as the center. Um, and I just mentioned how we're still behind, right, in, in having right. Um, bilingual children's books available um, right now. And so I wanted to ask you how that, was that part of your interest as well of, um, you know, becoming a writer of children's book, just making sure that there were more, <laughs> that um, that the stories that, that you told um, were ones that you wanted your daughter to read and those stories being both in English and Spanish. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about that, the need for bilingual books and also your own interest in, in, in becoming this, you know, bilingual books writer? Right. So unfortunately, there are not a lot of mm-hmm. bilingual books and there's even lots written by people, Latinos, okay, mm-hmm. people of color, but Latinos in specific, um, when you look at the industry, there's only about 6% of mm-hmm. children's literature 
that is uh, Latino in the, mm-hmm. the publishing industry overall. And then with this past year, the statistics are for 2020 that out of the 3,300 books that were published, there were 228 written about Latinos. And the, I'm sorry, 200 about Latinos and 228 by Latinos. Mm. So we're just, you know, just 28 more by us than about us. Right. So, so we don't own our own stories. Mm. And, and that's a really big issue. And other people being able, and you know, being published, publishing is difficult and being published is, is a challenge to begin with. So that there's so many people that are not Latino that are telling our stories mm-hmm. um, is, is very problematic. And right. then when you speak about Puerto Rican authors and Puerto Rican stories, I couldn't get you statistics because they don't they don't count them mm-hmm. because it's such a small little niche mm-hmm. um, amount of, of writers. So I, I know there was a study in, in 2019 that looked at Puerto Rican authors, you know, on the island and in Puerto Rico, which is the other, you know, confusing thing is that who do we look at? The ones that are here, the ones that are there, the ones that are here or there. Um, so so there's a, a number of, of little things that we are we're trying to figure out, I think. Um, personally, my story specifically with children's literature was when I was in Puerto Rico, I was an editor for Santiana that does educational books, mm-hmm. K through six was what we were working on. And I was in charge of a series where we were using children's stories and with the story for the English books, we would then do all kinds of different activities and, you know, have a chapter, but each chapter based on one story. And then for a sixth grade book, they needed a writing. So they, I was taking a class on um, Englishes in the Caribbean and they, they liked that topic. So I did a piece for them. And and it was great, and already was there working with artists and, you know, making all these chapters and, and doing things with stories and, and getting them illustrated and, and doing, you know, laying them out and using them. So I was learning this craft in a very, like, different sort of way than I think maybe many writers do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, I went I went off to do the PhD, and I continued to work for Santiana, but as a writer, creating materials for them. And it always it stayed in my head, like, oh, you know, these stories, they... I, I, I think I could do this. You know, maybe I can do this. Um, and then when I started to write the stories, I did what I think you and many other people do. I, I wrote about, you know, things that were important to me, people that I knew, things that I was, you know, like mm-hmm. stuff that was real to me because that, that's what I think a lot of writers. I mean, you use imagination and, I, you know, I definitely use a lot of my imagination as well. But I was also tapping into, like, who I am, where I'm from, where my people are from. And I don't think, you know, it was like this, big all-in-caps write a Puerto Rican story, <laughs> but you know, as a Puerto Rican, you know, studying Puerto Rican studies, uh, living in Puerto Rico for a time and now in the diaspora, it just organically is the story that, that happens to have, you know, right. these, these pieces that reflect my culture. Um, but I don't, I don't think I ever, you know, set out to write the Puerto Rican story in all caps. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I know, exactly, exactly. But, you know, like, for the bomba one, like, with, you know, cuando Julia bailaba bomba, it was really an exploration of bomba. You know, mm-hmm. which is this Afro Puerto mm-hmm. Rican genre of music and mm-hmm. dance and singing, and then kind of entering it through a very real way. Both of my children have taken bomba classes, you know, and I was just reflecting on that. And I was really reflecting on, you know, like being scared at doing something that you know you're not good at, you know, and what happens like when you're paralyzed with fear, <laughs> you don't you're not able to dance, you're not able to hear the music, and that's not Puerto Rican specific, <laughs> that's not bomba specific, that's very human. So I think, you know, 
I, I'm interested in a topic and then I'm trying to figure out how to enter into it. And I always hope that as, as much as I love to share my culture and, and who and what I am, I also want this story to be accessible to as many children as possible because, you know, like we've already just stated, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of books for our kids, right. whether it be, you know, Chicano or you know, Dominican or Puerto Rican, so that like they can see themselves in my story somehow. I think it's, right. it's really important. So that was part of my next question, right? Asking so that clearly there is this um, sort of Puerto Rican pride and story and background on each of the stories. But certainly, uh, one of the 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 things that we want to encourage uh, our kids from different nationalities or backgrounds as to learn about other cultures, right? Um, and and this is one of the, the ways that you're doing doing this. So tell me what um, what reactions or what uh, feedback have you gotten from from these books? Um, who reads them? Is it uh, do do you have a diverse audience for for the books? Uh, uh, tell me how they're being used. Sure. So I'm going to focus on Sophie a little, the first book, because it's just a story in and of itself. Right. So I remember a couple months into publishing the book, luckily my superintendent in, in Brooklyn, New York, she would pick a book a year to use with the whole district, which mm. was 26 schools. Mm-hmm. So they had me pick the book, but my assistant principal took her my book and the, the superintendent was like, yeah, yeah, we like it. We'll use them both. So fine. So fast forward to the end of that school year and I got invited to a school and I walk in and I'm sitting there. They're going to celebrate, you know, the book and me. And I didn't know. They just, you know, they wanted me to be there. And I just I said, sure, I was able to, to put in my schedule. And I started seeing the characters of my book walk past me. So they were like full grown men and women dressed up like the characters in my mm-hmm. book. And I almost fell out of my chair, you know. So, and then I found out, like, that the teachers had, you know, used their own money and their own time to sew these these costumes oh and goodness. make them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm like, wow. elementary teachers I mean, are elementary awesome. Teachers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was just so super surreal. And then it like really hit me how hungry our people are for stories that mm-hmm. they can see themselves. And mm-hmm. then some of the teachers were actually not Puerto Rican; they were Dominican, but they have El Diablo Coelho which is similar to the Bejigante. So they, once again, they could see themselves in the story. And right. all they needed was like to be able to kind of sort of see themselves and they were going to grab on because mm-hmm. there are just so few of these stories. Mm-hmm. So then um, I was also at that time, I started to do things with um, the Cleveland Public Libraries and they had flown me out to, to do a training for the libraries and to do some talks at the school, author talks. So Melanie... Um, Mama Carter, she was taking me to the schools and she was watching me do my, my talks and or my presentations on my book, but mm-hmm. the book has three songs in it. So, you know, I'd be singing, I'd be showing them different instruments. And then one thing to led to another, and she's like, let's turn this into a production. And so, so then we ended up with this public production that we, we did things on our own and we started going around with it. And then I applied for a Cleveland Foundation grant, and we did. We received the money to record it professionally. Mm. And we were going to, this past year, show it at a number of different schools in, in Cleveland. But then because of the, the pandemic, we had to take everything virtual. Mm-hmm. So then we had to figure things out, like everyone else had to figure things out. And without the budget and without really the background, 
we ended up making it into a small movie. Mm-hmm. So and so then we we shared it and we showed it at the Julio de Burgo Center in Cleveland, mm-hmm. and through and with the Cleveland Public Library we showed it and we had over two thousand views. So it did phenomenal. Right. And then we ended up you know sharing it with other friends. So we shared it with Harris County in Texas, and we're like the Brooklyn Public Library now has like six or seven different mm-hmm. dates that they're showing it. Mm-hmm. So. So another thing, so just this one story has had all kinds of different manifestations. Um, it's been able to go to all kinds of different audiences, and it, it has a life of its own. So that's, it's, it's exciting, right. and it's, it's challenging. Right. <laughs> you know, and right. it's, it's many things. <laughs> so it's, it's like a lot of things. <laughs> so. Right. No, but it's amazing, right, because there is um, – there <laughs> – there are obstacles for publishing, uh, but one of the things that that I that I hear you saying is that people are ready for the stories, right? They're they're ready to to um, to hear, to read, to engage, um, and to use them in the classroom, right? Um, and this right. is one of the things that you that you've done already, so that's that's great. Um, I'm all for it, you know, continuing to to build on that. And hopefully, I mean, I, I think you just got started, right? So you, you'll continue to <laughs> continue to write. So uh, I, I support that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No, writing is not the problem. I think, you know, the issue is publishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so. no, it's true. It's true. Yes, yeah. I know. I know. Um, Raquel, is there anything else you would like to say about your your work or any any news or future uh, plans, um, you know, in your writing or, or any other project that you might have uh, coming up? Right. Well, we're really, really excited that for my, my job at the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, I was able to write a script and a song for Cucarachita Martina. Mm-hmm. And that's a Puerto Rican folktale. And we did it to celebrate Pura Betre. And she was the first Puerto Rican librarian, the first Latina, we believe, to, to publish in the United States. Mm-hmm. She published this book in, in 1932. And because of her work as an activist and as a librarian and as a writer and with folklore, she ended up being the person they chose to name um, an award after. So for Reforma, which is the group of librarians, bilinguals, um, Spanish interests, our Latino, Latinx librarians, they have this award, the Buda Bebre Award, and this year is the 25-year anniversary. Mm. So we did this film, and it's, you know, it's an honor of her, but it's really focusing on her first story. And it got picked up by the Tribeca Film Festival. Oh, my goodness. So, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have a, we're premiering in New York City in a couple of weeks, so... The first night is Friday the 11th, and then they're showing it again Mm -hmm. on June, yes, Mm -hmm. and then on June 13th at 4, right after the the National Puerto Rican Day Parade, they're going to have a viewing of it, and we're just going to be there and kind of like I, I'm still a little bit in shock about all of this <laughs> so, <laughs> so so we're excited you know and it was you know it's very um, colorful the animation is beautiful it's by Tere Marichal and she's super talented and the whole team it was we once again we did it during the pandemic we were I was personally I was recording in my closet <laughs> the voice is like sending the the audio file to the the producer so we we did we lived a lot of things to make it happen um but it's very beautiful and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very dear to our hearts 
so I'm hoping. And so it's just a folktale. It's, it's a Puerto Rican folktale, but it's also throughout all of Latin America that many people know about Cucarachita. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm hoping once again, you know, it, it's something that's going to facilitate conversations mm-hmm. and, and bridges between people. Right. So that's the, the big, big thing. And then the other thing for my SEPI project, I began working with William Cepeda, who is a four-time Grammy nominee. And he does uh, Latin jazz, but he's also the father of um, Afro-Puerto Rican Latin jazz. So he and I are starting to work on an album of bomba music for children. Mm-hmm. So That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So and where, we, where can that? we find mm-hmm. all of this news and information? Well, <laughs> Right, right. So I have a web page and we have, um, we actually, we have a, a page all of its own for Sophie's um, magical adventure because <laughs> it's, it's so magical and so big. <laughs> it has its own page. Um, and we have all of the books there and the different projects I'm working on. But it's um, drraquelmortiz.com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was Spanglish. drraquelmortiz.com. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, is yeah. the film in, in uh, English and Spanish? Well, you know, with the film, we ended up, once again, in Spanglish. I uh-huh. think I also, I've been studying Tato La Viera, who's like the father of Spanglish, and I think he's influenced me way too much. <laughs> so you have her sitting there talking, and then she starts talking about Señor Pato and Señor Gato. So it is... It's more English than Spanish. Um, the last song is very, very bilingual. But I think because of the imagery and things, I think it's very easy. If you're Spanish-dominant mm-hmm. you, and you watch this movie, yeah, you mm-hmm. should be able to follow it. Mm-hmm. And then just, I've also noticed it's a super hit with like kids, but it's a super hit with grandmas. Like all the grandmothers <laughs> that I've shown this, super love this. So. Oh, that's great. We didn't know that our other audience was going to be grandma. <laughs> that's great that's yeah. great la abuelita necesita verla también <laughs> right well yeah I know and I think too like when you if you study when she was at the library with the abuelas that were going there to mm-hmm. try and keep their children from losing Spanish so they were getting mm-hmm. the books in Spanish mm-hmm. so that they could keep that so I think you know on some level once again we have grandmas who don't want our children to lose either the language or the singing or, or the folk tales or mm-hmm. or any of this so they're you know they're very supportive and they're hoping for more so I hope I hope we get the opportunity to continue to make more right right uh, Raquel gracias por esta conversación gracias a ti Elena no it's a pleasure thank you so much for your interest in, in my projects and, and thank you for supporting bilingual children's literature. We need all the support absolutely, we can get. Absolutely. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. 